Hey, neighbor. Appreciate you coming by. Pull up a chair and have a seat. Hang on just a second. I'll go get you some coffee. Have you ever noticed how many modern songs have a lot to say about life and death? Tom Petty's saying, hey baby, there ain't no easy way out. Kenny Rogers in his famous song, The Gambler, saying the best you can hope for is to die in your sleep. Neil Diamond in a song that really digs deep about the search for the meaning of life and existence saying, I am, I cried, I am, said I, and I am lost and I can't even say why leaving me lonely still. He goes on to sing, but I've got an emptiness deep inside and I've tried and it won't let me go. And I'm not a man that likes to swear, but I've never cared for the sound of being alone. I am, I said, to no one there and no one heard it all, not even the chair. On Monday, September 19th, 2016, the Wall Street Journal in the opinion section Bookshelf by Colin McGinn gives a, an evaluation of the book No Easy Way Out, The Consolations of Mortality by Andrew Stark in Yale Press. Listen to what he says. Given the absence of an afterlife, we need to be consoled about death. Let me stop right there. That is a huge statement and assumes a lot as fact. He says, given the absence of an afterlife, we need to be consoled about death. He goes on to write, unlike animals that are spared our lifelong anticipation of it, we need a story about our mortality that makes it look like less of a tragedy. In his chipper and charming The Consolations of Mortality, Making Sense of Death, Andrew Stark, a professor of management and political science, at the University of Toronto considers four stories about death and why death might not be as bad as we tend to suppose. So think about this, dealing with the question of mortality and death, this chipper and charming story. Andrew Stark, his credentials is he is a professor of management and political science at the University of Toronto. You've got to ask yourself, what are his credentials that gives him the right and makes him an authority to address such a serious subject and to then offer these four points. So much arrogance. So his different perspectives that he offers as possibilities for you to latch on to, to find some sort of hope to live in this present life, he says, first, death is actually quite benign. Bam, there you go. Looking for hope? Just latch on to the statement, death is actually quite benign. But dear friend, I just spoke to a, a dear friend, a person that I grew up with. I, I, I grew up with, I've known all my life, uh, literally, whose mother passed away from the Wuhan virus. And let me tell you something, that at this moment right now, uh, there is no hope and consolation in latching onto the concept of about death and mortality as that it's just quite benign. Second, he offers up, immortality would give us no more goods than mortality can provide. Talk about a materialistic approach to life. Third, immortality itself would be intolerable. Oh, okay, so we just, 
Wipe a slate clean towards the concept of death and the reality of it, something that every person faces, just to say, well, that thought's intolerable, so let's erase it from our minds. Fourth, life already contains all the bad things that death entails. So to just wipe away your concern about what's going to happen to you when you die with, with just the thought, well, this life's already bad enough. Dear friend, this is what happens when people take the issue of life and mortality and immortality into their own minds, into their own thinking, and exclude the revelation of God. And yet we know God says so much more about your value as a human being and the reality that there can be an eternal hope for you through the power and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is an infinite creator, and he created you eternal. Infinite God, no beginning and no end. In the Old Testament, when God was sending Moses to the Israelites, Moses said to God, when they ask me who sent me, what should I tell them? God said, tell them, I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. Back in the Bill Clinton days of the presidency, during the impeachment proceedings, people made fun of Bill Clinton because of his breakdown of the word is. And the, in the slate easing in online digital media in September, of, September 13th of 1998, Timothy Noah writes this. Listen to this article. Years from now, when we look back on Bill Clinton's presidency, its defining moment may well be Clinton's rationalization to the grand jury about why he wasn't lying when he said to his top aides that with respect to Monica Lewinsky, there's nothing going on between us. How can this be? Here's what Clinton told the grand jury, according to footnote 1,128 in Starr's report. And this is quoting Bill Clinton. He says... It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. If the, if he, if is means is and never has been, that is not, that is one thing. If it means there is none, that was a completely true statement. Now, if someone had asked me on that day, are you having any kind of sexual relations with Ms. Lewinsky? That is, ask me a question in the present tense. I would have said no, and it would have been completely true. So Noah goes on and writes, the distinction between is and was was seized on by the commentariat when Clinton told Jim Lehrer of PBS right after the Lewinsky story broke, there is no proper relationship. Chatterbox confesses that at the time he thought all these beltway domes were hyperanalyzing and in need of a little fresh air, but it turns out they were right. Bill Clinton really is a guy who's willing to think carefully about what the meaning of the word is, is. This is way beyond slick. Perhaps we should start calling him existential Willie. And so whether you realize it or not, Bill Clinton is a genius mind. I don't care for his personal lifestyle, but I can tell you he is a brilliant mind. He wasn't playing word games. He was very meticulous in the way that he used the word is because is has to do with present tense. And in the Greek, we call it active indicative. It's talking about real time, something that exists now. And so if you use that word carefully, 
you can construct sentences in such a way to tell the truth about a present situation, depending on how you use that word is, is. But the Bible talks about God, and he says about himself, I am who I am. In other words, God says, I am the eternally existent present one. He is the infinite, eternally existing one. God is and has always been is and has never been was. Now, I know that gets a little complicated, but give it some thought and you'll understand what I'm saying. Listen to what Jesus says about himself as he was under attack by the chief religious leaders of his day. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, starting in verse 48, the Jews responded to him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus said, I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? (laughs) Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. You see, my friends, that day when the religious leaders were attempting to tear him to shreds and to belittle him and to to nullify who he is and what he came to do, in the midst of it, Jesus told them several things. He reminded them, yes, you are of Father Abraham, But here's the bottom line. You're a liar. You are a liar. He says, I would be a liar like you. And so the Bible makes it clear that Jesus turns the table on these accusers and on these fault finders and on these hate mongers. And he says, here's the truth that before your father Abraham was, I am. When he used the term I am, they knew instantly that he was making a reference to himself, that he is God, the eternally, the infinite, eternally existing one. That's why they picked up stones to throw on. Years and years ago, when I was a young man, first in the ministry, I went to a, a clinic over at a major seminary in Fort Worth, and the speaker was somebody who was dearly loved. He was gregarious, kind of cherubic, a little pudgy. And he worked in the the rec ministry uh, for the youth pastors, teaching them how to be a great youth pastor. But I remember the night that we came together for a pretty important conference. He got up and spoke, and it was very serious. But in his speaking, 
he made the outlandish statement that Jesus was not guilty and punishable of death because he never claimed to be God. And as I heard him say this, I thought, what in the world are you talking about? How can you say that Jesus never claimed to be God? And so his reasoning is that the Jews were wrong to put him on the cross because Jesus did not commit blaspheme because he never claimed to be God. And I thought, here is a guy that's got a PhD teaching at our seminaries and teaching young students who, have, who feel a calling to work with other students, people who are very impressionable, does not believe that Jesus claimed to be God. Dear friends, the reason why he was not guilty of blaspheme when he said that I am is because he is the eternal God. <laughs> he tells one of his disciples, they were concerned about, about uh, Jesus going away. And he said that I'm going to my father. And he says, the one who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, Philip, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The father who lives in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. In John chapter 10, verse 30 Jesus made the clear statement about himself that I and the Father are one. Dear friend, there is no way to be at peace by just dismissing death as quite benign or immortality as intolerable or, or, irrele or irrelevant. I can get the word out here. Or irrelevant because this life is already bad as things can get and death would be no worse. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts. As much as an atheistic evolutionary science wants to make us just another primate in the animal kingdom, God has put it in our hearts to know that we operate in a different way than other life forms. God has put it in you and in me, an awareness that there's something more to this life than what we can see and experience in the here and now. I'll have show notes that, that tag an article on gotquestions.org that explains more about that, the Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 passage. But haven't you ever wondered how a squirrel can run lickety-split across an electrical high wire a massive distance above the ground in relationship to its size? A sure death drop without absolutely no fear? They have no self-awareness. You and I do because we are not animals. We are humans created in the image of our creator God. The image of God in our lives, it was marred and damaged at the fall into sin by Adam. But folks, we are still created in God's image. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22 says that for since death came through a man, talking about Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man talking about Jesus Christ. He says, the Apostle Paul says, for just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now that's not a blanket statement to say that all humans are made alive in Christ and go to heaven. It's talking about the fact that if one places their faith and trust in Christ alone for their salvation, that yes, you and I experience death because of sin, but through Christ we are made alive. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says that it has been appointed for people to die once, and after this, the judgment. But the good news is, as Paul goes on there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, talking about Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. And so, dear people, today, I want you to know you can drop the question mark from the question or the statement, no easy way out, question mark, and say, no, there is a way out. It was not easy for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He suffered an immense amount of pain and torture for your sin and my sin. And he died a real death and was placed in a borrowed tomb. And the power of God resurrected his dead body and brought him back to life on the third day, forever to stand resurrected. The Bible says that he is the first fruits from the dead. And you and I can partake in that resurrection life if we would just turn to him. For us, is it easy to lay down our own rights and to say, Uncle, I surrender, I give up, I submit to the authority of God in my life and accept the free gift that Jesus Christ offers me of eternal life? On the one hand, it's easy. On the other hand, it's the hardest thing in life for us to do to finally say, I'm dying to myself, I'm picking up my cross and I'm following Christ daily. But dear people, with that, we have peace. Hey, I hope you've had a great day. Pray that you'll take these words to heart and allow them to sink into your soul, to give you great encouragement, also to be an ambassador of peace to others. When you see people suffering, when you see people in anguish, when you see people who have fear or fears mounting because of what's happening in the culture, be bold, reach out to them, speak the truth to them in love, and let them know that they can have hope beyond this life. So many times when I've done funerals, as I'm standing there at the graveside of that loved one, I can remember back, uh, there was a person who passed, I was at the graveside, standing at the head of the casket where you always stand as a pastor, at the, the where the head of the body is at the casket. There were many, many people gathered around the casket that day at the graveside, and they were deeply grieved. And I looked at every one of them, and I said that as we stand here today and get ready to place this body into the ground, I looked at them specifically. I said, you all know that this is not the end. And everybody started shaking their heads, yes. And I said, God has placed it in your heart to know that you have much more value, infinitely more value than just to be placed in the grave like an animal and are dead. And that you and I can know that we can have hope beyond the grave and life that lasts forever. When we accept Christ as our Savior, eternal life begins right now and we never die. The body, it says it has to be placed in the ground it has to suffer decay because it's been damaged by sin. But yet we have the promise that our spirits will be reunited with a resurrected, glorified, perfect human body and live in that forever. And so, dear friend, that gives you immense peace. I hope you know that for yourself. Share that good news with others. And with that, I bid you peace.